0: QuantLayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of QuantLayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast.
1: Hey everyone, you've got Vikram from QuantLayer and thanks for listening to our 22nd podcast. On this episode, Fezan and I review the latest proclamations of Bitcoin's death. Number one, Axios's report that corporate blockchain and Bitcoin interest is waning. Number two, Galaxy Digital dumping their ICO advisory business. And number three, volatility drying up forcing traders to look for alpha elsewhere. We also look at Amazon's expansion into New York City right into our backyard. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. Hey, everyone. You got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard. How's it going, Fizan? Uh, It's going pretty well. All right. So... Every few weeks, someone proclaims that Bitcoin is dead. It's always immediately after there's a large movement down in BTC. Like if it's down 10, 15% one day, it's dead. If it's down 5% every day for a week straight, it's dead. If Goldman shuts down their crypto trading desk, it's dead.
0: And I'd just like to chime in for those of you that are listening. We don't have the notes in front of you. Dead, D-E-D dead, not D-A-A-D. It's a big difference.
1: Yeah, it's a huge difference. Just write it out and see how it looks and then you'll you'll know why. So there's no shortage in proclamations of Bitcoin being dead. There's actually a website, it's pretty funny, that keeps track of all the major Bitcoin deaths at uh, 99bitcoins.com slash obituary slash stats. And they have this little like obituary generator, which is pretty funny. You can just like click on generate obituary and it'll come up with, you know, some other like... Okay, it'll, get, it'll come up with the title for why Bitcoin is dead. So right now I see Bitcoin is actually kicking the bucket. And if you click it again, it'll say, is this Bitcoin's Grim Reaper? So these all sound like Forbes headlines. Yeah. But, you know, this week came across a different kind of Bitcoin being dead note. The first one is, we'll, we'll talk about three of them, but the first one is, uh, is blockchain is dead. And then the second one is ICO advisory is dead. And then the third one is volatility is dead. So we're kind of like expanding the whole Bitcoin is dead thing into a couple other areas. So, you know, I thought they're pretty interesting. So, you know, we can we can go through those. The first one is uh, so Axios, they put out a little, little report titled Corporate America's Blockchain and Bitcoin Fever is Over. And... It's by Courtney Brown of Axios. So Axios is uh, this... uh, Actually, Fizan, I think you introduced me to Axios. How would you describe them?
0: Yeah, I really like Axios. I would say it's like digital news done right. So they have a really great UX that lets you sort of scroll and very quickly get uh, two paragraph summaries of articles that have just enough information for you to know if you want to read more. And it actually tells you how much longer the article is going to be if you do follow up. And then when you go ahead and do that, the article is really just broken down into, into sections of like what's happening, why this is important, what this could mean. You know, it gets down into the like why this is relevant. And then they follow up with material if you, if you want to go deeper into the topic. So I don't know, it has a really nice cadence for just skimming through, diving in to learn a little bit more or like really investigating a topic without like disrupting your, your flow. And I also just find they cover good stuff and and do a good job of it it's not just like that the ux is good
1: yeah and it's not just you know it has summaries but that's not the main point like you said they extract out the relevant pieces and all that and again that was not an ad for axios but axios if you're listening we are taking sponsors so get in touch so anyway so this particular article declaring that corporate america's interest in blockchain bitcoin fever has some data behind it most of the predictions we see are just claims against the price of bitcoin Uh, but this one actually looks at earnings calls and mentions of words like blockchain or crypto or bitcoin in them so this is from the article snp executives are dropping blockchain buzzwords less on earnings calls and during presentations to analyst investors analysts are also asking about it less so they have a few charts in there that are pretty interesting. It's basically the number of times people have been using those terms in conference calls. And then they imply that, where they conclude that the drop in usage implies some kind of lack of interest in the topics. So this is from them. At the peak earlier this year, blockchain was mentioned 173 times, according to an analysis of company transcripts by Axios. The number has since fallen as much as 80%. Bitcoin was never as popular. Dropping that word or cryptocurrency was most common in the first quarter of this year with a mere 68 mentions. So I actually do like that they're tracking this. It's up for debate on, you know, how this necessarily corresponds to Bitcoin being dead. But it is interesting data nonetheless, because like it does mean that they had, you know, someone on the ground actually going through these calls or they're ran it through some kind of, you know, some sort of basic NLP to determine these numbers. But it is interesting with to that respect.
0: Yeah. And I think, it you know, just counting how many times these words are mentioned is a pretty coarse metric, but I'm like sure correlates somewhat to how much interest has actually decreased. But what I'd be more interested in seeing is where the drop off is in terms of last year, particularly, we had a lot of companies that Really, their core business had nothing to do with the blockchain. Adding the blockchain in some way didn't actually add any value to their product, but just they wanted to get on the hype train. And so it'd be interesting to see if more of the mentions that have dropped off are from companies that fit that profile versus ones that are either their core competency is something to do with the blockchain or is somehow legitimately enhanced by using a blockchain. My gut feeling is that it's the latter. Yep. Meaning that it's more of a, like, marketing
1: type of term?
0: Yeah, like, because the, like, you know, there was the price run up and every company that was changing their name to blockchain, their stock price was shooting up. Like, I think the drop off is in probably more concentrated in that end of the spectrum of like, just hype and fluff yep. versus like companies that have a legitimate use for blockchain or are launching a legitimate blockchain product have probably not just been working on it for the last six months. You know, you probably will not see the mentions disappear from from their earnings calls or their reports. Right, right. But it would be interesting to see more detailed metrics like that, although the coarse-grained ones are pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, it's reminiscent a little bit of that these companies were announcing these on their calls is reminiscent of, like, the heady days of Web 1.0 companies in the late 90s when they said they were going to have a website and their stocks started going crazy. Like furniture companies would say they're going to have a website and stock would like double. And pretty soon, like a lot of companies that literally had nothing to do with the internet space just would announce they'd want to have some kind of internet presence just to have their stocks react to that. So it's this weird psychology that we see over and over again. You know, one thing interesting, though, is like is the question of whether this interest waning and I I will probably agree there. You know, I'm not going to agree that like everything is dead. But I I do see that there's less interest, probably because you know the price hasn't moved that much that for a lot of these coins recently, or they've fallen apart for a lot of like the ICOs. But so, open question is whether or not interest waning is is a good thing for crypto focused companies. And you know, I think like when the broad public doesn't care about the market, you know, that's the time when you don't have to deal with all the riffraff coming in it's people who are really specialized and like want to do good work in the space. You see them building in the space. I don't yeah, know what do exactly.
0: you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the company that have something legitimate that they're doing will continue to do so. I think those that are hurt by it are ones that could have used the capital that it was possible to raise, say at the end of last year, that now are not going to have that same access to it that are still working on something legitimate. So, you know, definitely if you're in in that situation where you're relying on that capital, you know, end of last year was a much, much better scenario for you.
1: Yeah. Even if you're relying on like the public capital and that is not as, uh, you know, that kind of conduit doesn't exist the way it it does. There are a lot of these like crypto-focused venture funds now who are looking for crypto-focused investments. So if you're a solid entrepreneur, you have a good idea and like, it's probably easier to get in front of the right people in this kind of market than, you know, like a crazy heady, heady market.
0: Yeah. Yeah. On just like a personal level, I am not opposed to having it be a little quiet for a while, just because what we saw last year was a lot of like outright scams or very poorly thought out or executed ICOs. And just, you know, the word cryptocurrency Did develop a bit of a stigma for a large portion of the population because of all of that. A lot of like retail investors interaction with it was either, oh, I bought Bitcoin and the price crashed or like ICO scams. Right. And I think having a bit of a bear market, it flushes that segment of the population out of the market disproportionately more than companies that are doing legitimate work. Yep. And it gives you more time to do
1: research. Like if you actually want to get involved in the space.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to worry that there's like 30 companies ICOing with the same white paper right. that are like r- rushing to market in three months. <laughs> yeah, so the second
1: part of the whole Bitcoin is dead phenomena is uh, is this galaxy digital news that came out on Friday afternoon in a classic like aftermarket Friday news dump. So there's a few things to this story. One is uh, Galaxy Digital, they're changing their business model. Executives at Galaxy are leaving or switching roles and that it got announced on a a Friday night. So we'll go through each of these. First off, who is Galaxy and what happened? Okay, So they describe themselves as a diversified multi-service merchant bank dedicated to the digital assets and blockchain technology industry. And that that today, meaning on Friday, last week, they announced several strategic operational and organizational changes. So background here is basically like Galaxy was started by Mike Novogratz and Mike Novogratz was this billionaire hedge fund manager at Fortress Investment Group, which is one of these like larger diversified hedge funds. If you go back to the late 2000s, it was the first uh, major hedge fund to go public. So he was involved in that that whole thing. A lot of hedge funds at the time were like pretty excited because they basically thought that okay, so these guys are going to lead the charge and going public. That means a lot of other hedge funds are going to be able to go public, and the founders will have you know an opportunity to exit and whatnot. I remember talking to one fund manager who's like, "This is the Intel going public moment for hedge funds," and what he meant by that was like. It's the first big hedge fund that's going to go public and the rest of us are going to go public and we can create like a dynasty for our families and like all this stuff. Hmm. Ended up not playing out just because of like the economics around that. It's it's weird to have like one or two major players that run a fund and then they're taken public and then those guys kind of cash out and go leave. Especially if there's not like a process in, of investment in place. So... It ended up not becoming like a phenomenon. But anyway, so why is Mike Novogratz important? So why are we talking about him? Well, he was one of these first mainstream investment managers to make public claims about crypto. And he said something in the past like 20% of his net worth is in Bitcoin and Ethereum.
0: Yeah, so I hadn't heard about Fortress, but the way I knew this name is that he's always making price predictions. Every year when like the mainstream media... need someone to quote on what the price of bitcoin is going to be he usually has one yeah. <laughs> and so his i think most recent one is that it's going to go to 20k again next year <laughs> which i just found that on the alerting uh, platform today <laughs> <laughs> hey guys we need uh we need a
1: we need a bitcoin price quote for 2019 <laughs> let's get mike novogratz on the line yeah. um, basically <laughs> so sometime in 2017 he expressed uh, an interest in launching a crypto only fund which was, uh, I think it was going to be called a Galaxy Digital Assets Fund. And then he walked back those public statements a little bit, saying that market conditions were bad. And I think a bunch of people made fun of him for this. But, you know, stuff like this, it's, it's pretty common. It's not like it doesn't happen. Didn't something like this happen to you? Yeah. So back in 2008, I feel like so much of my investment, investment, investing career had to do with like 2008. But basically in 2008, we, actually around 2007, 2008, it took about a year for this whole process to play out. But we were interested at the hedge fund I was at to launch a India portfolio. And there were a couple other funds that were doing this, but it still wasn't a well-trodden path. So we thought we could actually put together some pretty solid returns based on our understanding of the India market. The way we did research, the way we did like fundamental research and whatnot. And we thought we could like take that to India and, you know, generate alpha. So we started looking into Indian companies. We actually started put in a few trades on some Indian companies too. And then we made a trip out there as like the final part of the process in terms to meet like big investors out there, to meet prime brokers. And we were basically going to launch. And this, so we were out there June, 2008. And I remember my, my lease on my apartment that I was sharing with my roommate at the time was going to be up in, at the end of August. So at the end of August, I'd come back to the U.S. and I was like, okay, we're ready to go. I don't know the date I'm going to go out there yet, but it's going to be in the next few months. So I'll just get like a month to month apartment until I can actually go to India. And then between that time, like everything, like everything happened, like Lehman went bust, the credit crisis just like happened. It was a pretty intense period as a result, because of all that market turmoil, what had been a really easy sell to our investors, like, hey, guys, we're going to open a uh, India portfolio. We had the money lined up. Everybody just backed out. We literally, everybody except the portfolio, like our portfolio manager, which is, you know, like the guy who runs the fund. but like. Every, everybody, right. yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but everybody else pulled out. So you do have to like pay attention to market conditions because they they do affect a fund's launch. As a fund manager, you you don't want to be the guy who to launch at the peak of a bubble, um, especially if you want to be longer space. That's just a, that's just a recipe to fail. So that's one part of the equation, right? Like you don't want to launch your fund at the peak of a market. Maybe to raise capital, you'll be okay, but actual for investment returns, it's going to be terrible. So, you know, think about high watermarks here.
0: So uh, what is a high water mark?
1: So I'll just give a situation as an example. So say it's January 1st, 2018, and you have a nice buffed up shingle for your shiny new hedge fund. You can't just sit around in cash. Your investors have given you their capital to invest it. So you start investing like 80% of your fund's assets. And now you're net long 80% because you sold all your investors on the idea that you're going to be a long crypto fund. So in a very short order, the market falls apart down 50%. So now your fund is down 40%. The math there is just you were long 80%. That got cut in half. So it's now down 40%. All right. So having a high watermark means you need to make everything back that you lost your fund investors in order to take a performance fee on them. So, if you're down 40%, that means you need to be up almost 70% to break even. It's like 66.7% or whatever.
0: Right, right. Yeah. The in- Just to put it into dollars, I guess. So, if you started with 100 million, you'd have been down to 60. And now on 60, you need to make 40 million more before you're back to zero. Right,
1: exactly. And then only after that can you start taking your performance fee again. So, 70% is a pretty tough number to hit. In like traditional stock market land, like a lot of funds will be down like 10, 15% and they'll just shut down, return money to their investors and then just open up a new uh, hedge fund. Because once you're down, it's just if, if you're down like 3%, 4%, that's all right. But once you get into like 10, 15, it's just really hard to like make your money back. So... The consequences. So basically, you know, your brand new shiny hedge fund is screwed. So here's what's going to happen. Your fund investors are going to start demanding redemptions. And since you're 80% invested, you need to start selling your assets to make your capital calls. (laughs) And after that, you basically have zero capital left. And since everyone knows you were that nut job who decided to go all in on the peak of a bubble, no one's going to give you money again. And your sad little hedge fund shingle will go in the trash.
0: (laughs) And this probably happened quite a bit uh, last year because we did see quite a lot of cryptocurrency-based hedge funds launching in mid to late 2017. And a lot of them have probably been hammered because they launched around peak prices.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I imagine many of them were run by like non-professionals who don't know how to short and don't know how to manage risk. They're probably just long
0: a basket of currency and... Let's say they bought in at the equivalent of Bitcoin at twelve thousand or fourteen thousand, they're just down.
1: Yeah, so it's up to you know the terms of their investors. Like I wonder what the lockups were like, like were there three months or a year or two years, whatever. So. You know, we we talked a little bit about high watermarks and all this stuff and take episode six. So we'll link to that in the show notes. But the point here is that basically, you know, you know, let's give Mike Novogratz a break. It's you you got to pay attention to market conditions when launching a new fund. So back to Galaxy. So he was going to launch the fund, but decided against it. And instead, he launched this kind of holding company that would do a bunch of things in crypto. So... They did this reverse merger with a company that trades on the Canadian Venture Exchange called like Bradmer Pharmaceuticals in order to go public.
0: So what is a reverse merger?
1: Okay. So a reverse merger is a little arcane technique to make you a lot of money. Um, I'm just kidding. But basically <laughs> what what it is is when a private company buys a public company. So they do this for a number of reasons. Basically. So when a private company buys a public company, they're basically going to get rolled into that public company. And then now they're like publicly traded. So the reason they do it is, you know, they reduce their IPO costs. You know, IPO costs can be time intensive and dollar intensive. And to do a reverse merger, you basically just need to find a company, a public company shell that you can buy out and then roll your private company into. So one of my old bosses actually ran a consultancy that did this. He he would find cheap public shells and then help private companies go through the reverse merger process. So this was a while back. This was like 12, 13 years ago. But basically back then you could get a shell anywhere from, I remember specifically seeing quotes for 25 to 50,000. And I just looked it up right before the podcast because I, was, I wasn't I was sure how much they go for today, but it seems like they range from 50,000 to a few hundred thousand. So you'd work with a lawyer, get one of these shells and then you'd roll your company into it. So instead of doing a traditional IPO where you're limited by a bunch of factors, like if bankers are gonna take you on, the banker's costs, public market performance, things like that, you can go public more quickly and then raise capital and do what you need to do. So my old boss, what he did was he would help, he would help find these shells. He actually would like buy the shells and then sell them too. But part of his consulting was was he would Help you do a reverse merger and then take a piece of equity in your company for as part of like the whole process. He actually didn't take a a dollar fee, it was just equity. And it had a couple work out pretty well for him. So, Hmm. why do these shells exist? Because I always thought this whole thing was really weird. Like, but basically, you know, companies, you know, they go bankrupt, they fail, they get delisted off exchanges, but their trading stock is still going to be around. So, when you're buying a shell, you're buying one of these companies. Basically, it's a company that ceased operations. So there's this, uh, there's this law firm Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn, which has a little write-up on their site about reverse mergers that is worth checking out, but I'll just read a few of the types of shells that exist. So generally speaking, a public shell company is a non-operating public company. Typically, public shells are listed on the NASDAQ small cap market, the NASDAQ bulletin board, or pink sheets. Public shells can exist in three possible forms, and then they go into each of these. So the first form a public shell could take is a startup company that never achieved significant revenues. This category generally includes Internet companies with uninspired business ideas and models that have failed to achieve profitability. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, normally these companies have a rather short business history and never acquired or managed substantial assets. Those are probably like some of the cleanest shells cause they don't have any debt, like some internet stock, right? It's not going to have much debt. It's not going to have many assets. It's probably a pretty clean shell. Yeah, Cap table might be weird, but you know, lawyers can figure that stuff out. The second category is that of a former operating company that went out of business or sold all of its operations. So this, I guess, is a company whose management and major shareholders decided at some point to sell all assets but keep the company's registration alive to pursue a possible lucrative reverse shell merger. And then the last one is, oh, these are funny. I I don't even know if this is a thing anymore. But finally and rarely, a public shell could be a company that was specifically formed and registered for the purpose of being sold in a reverse shell merger, also referred to as a blank check company.
0: That's interesting. So you can just create a public company that does nothing or has done nothing. So like my uh, memory of this goes back, you know, like 12, 13 years.
1: And back then I remembered that it was possible to do that. But what ended up happening was there were a lot of shady companies that ended up using the reverse merger process. So it ended up becoming harder and more expensive. So I think you can still do it, but you can't do it for like 25K. It's gonna cost okay. it's gonna cost a lot more. So also it's not magic. It's not like just because you successfully merge your private company into a shell company and now you're public, you're not and you're you're not suddenly on the Nasdaq and you're able to do a follow-on offering for a hundred million dollars. You're still gonna have legal costs to deal with. As a public company, you're gonna need an investor relations team to get your name out there into the market. So as I mentioned, like there's already a connotation of pump and dump with reverse mergers. There are a lot of companies out of China. During that period of mid 2000s, early to mid 2000s, which would basically merge their private Chinese companies into a US company shell to trade in the US, raise capital and whatnot. And a lot of them turned out to be legit, just straight frauds. So there is that connotation. So that's another layer of BS you have to deal with. So I guess with Novogratz is less of an issue because he's, you know, he's a, he's a known in the investing world.
0: So anyway, so back to, uh, before you continue, I just wanted, so I get like the reverse merger thing is not, it's gotten more expensive and there's that connotation of pump and dump, but if you're a big, well-known legitimate company, that's about to do an IPO, you filed your S1, what incentive do you have to go through the like traditional IPO process and get listed versus doing a reverse merger? If you don't have reputational issues, like let's say we had talked about Elastic doing their, their big, uh, IPO.
1: Well, first off, that would have been quite the episode. We're talking about like Elasticsearch, public shell reverse mergers. Yeah. So basically what the normal IPO process gives you is not just like a sheen of legitimacy. It gives you access to investors who have a lot of capital. You get meetings with Fidelity. Fidelity is going to buy your stock. You get meetings with Janus. Janus is going to buy your stock. With reverse mergers, they don't even trade on the NASDAQ yet like they're on the pink sheets or the NASDAQ small cap market, which is like a much smaller exchange. So you're not going to be able to raise as much capital using the reverse merger method. Okay. So it's basically like kind of cap table constrained. Novogratz could do it because this uh, Galaxy Digital is basically all his capital. Like he rolled all his crypto assets, his cash into Galaxy. But if you're looking to raise capital from like a larger group of investors, Fidelity doesn't deal in like pink sheet stocks. They don't deal in in small cap stocks. Janus doesn't deal in pink sheet stocks. That's the main reason. Like if you okay. already have a if you're at a big name, you're gonna put yourself at a disadvantage by going this route, unless it's all your capital. But in like yeah, elastic case, trying to raise right, fun. Right, yeah, exactly. Okay, that
0: makes sense. So yeah, all right, um, back to Galaxy then.
1: Yeah, back to Galaxy. So you know, I think it's worth going through their MD&A. It's their management discussion and analysis. They basically just lay out their business model a lot of companies filings have have this mdna so you can get into the weeds of their business model and uh, these guys file on cedar which is like the canadian version of the sec so i just found it interesting that like they also have some of the sec type of requirements in their filing so as it's always a canadian
0: a tra- i might say that the sec is the american version of cedar
1: <laughs> just might be so it's always treasure trove of interesting information. So basically, you know, the whole thing's 29 pages long. We're not going to go through all of it, but just some of the relevant details. So they have this uh, section on their principal business lines and they are trading, principal investing, asset management and advisory. And then they say Galaxy LP intends to leverage its deep ties into Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other protocol communities to drive returns from four core business segments. What do you think, what do you think deep ties into Bitcoin and Ethereum mean?
0: Well, I think the whole sentence is into the, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other protocol communities. Yep. So I don't know. Are
1: they just that's like in all the Telegram chats of all the coins?
0: Yeah, right? like I'm, I'm trying to to figure out how, you know, obviously being well connected is essential to investing successfully, but like, it's definitely an interesting line.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: as that's what's going to like that's to drive returns. You know, it's right. Not to,
1: it's not like they have core team members, right? I don't know. It's it's just funny. So they lay out their business model and units. And yeah, like I said, I'm not going to read all of it, but some of it's pretty interesting. First on trading. Trading business manages positions in cryptocurrency and other liquid digital assets, contributed to the business at the outset, and continues to invest and trade in those and related assets. So they have an in-house quant development team building out their trading strategy and infrastructure. Initially, they're focused on cross-exchange arbitrage opportunities. Okay. And they have a, a few other, you know, trading related things. Principal right. Investments is another, uh, another business. This is a, it has a diverse portfolio of private principal investments across the blockchain ecosystem, including early and later stage equity, pre-ICO contributions and other structured alternative investments. So this kind of sounds like a venture arm, right?
0: hmm
1: Yeah. Asset Management. This is the third one. The asset management business manages capital on behalf of third parties in exchange for management fees and performance based compensation. Such third party capital includes capital managed via partnership sponsored investment funds. At the time, management fees generally earned by the asset management business range from 0.5 to 2.5% of assets under management. And a carry of 15 to 25%. I wonder why the range, like usually these things are, you know, maybe it depends on the client, but that's kind of funny that like some clients get a better deal than others. But typically like the management fee is fixed and then the, you know, carry fee is fixed. So just wonder what what that means. It's a big range, especially for the management fee. It's 5x. Okay. And for advisory, so this is the business that they talked about on the release that's going, it sounds like it's going away. So the combination of, Partnership and the first coin team allows us to have a multi-jurisdictional advisory and consulting business spanning the emerging blockchain and cryptocurrency landscapes. The combined team develops and seeks to bridge the gap between technology and markets. Team supports clients with a broad range of services, including market research, solution ideation, and white paper writing, architecture design, business and technical requirement documentation, vendor selection, project management. Wow. So we'll just focus on part four here, but so they went into a few details. Um, So what I just read from was basically a filing, you know, just a couple months ago. So it was two months ago and they go into a few more details of what happened in Q1 and Q2. So I'll read that here. During the first quarter of 2018, the advisory business served a wide variety of clients with blockchain digital currency solutions. The Business works alongside both early stage and institutional clients as they navigate the space. During the second quarter, the advisory business continued to expand its capabilities and actively hire professionals with expertise in providing strategic corporate advisory services, stuff like M&A, corporate restructuring, and rebranding. So that was two months ago. And then this press release is in pretty sharp contrast with that. So this is what they're saying now. The company is adapting to the regulatory framework and the opportunities it is currently seeing and therefore repositioning its advisory business from focusing on small ICO advisory and blockchain consulting to instead serve larger, more institutional clients in the space. So the whole business isn't going away, but they're just modifying it pretty dramatically. And then they end this with, uh, to that end, the company is shutting down its Vancouver office and will be adding to its New York based team. So it sounds like they're no longer be going to be doing any small ICO advisory, and instead are going to serve bigger clients in crypto. So the shutting of the Vancouver office and the bolstering of the New York one is pretty interesting too. So it sounds like things were going all right before. Maybe I don't know. What do you think happened? It's just literally it's two months.
0: Yeah, I think there's probably two parts to it. One is just money. During the ICO craze, all these small ICO companies had tons and tons of cash, or not, you know, or equivalent in cryptocurrency. And so it was probably profitable to take them on. A, there's not as many of them. And B, the money just isn't there the way it was. And then the second part of that is I think people are not ignoring the regulatory concerns as much as they were a year ago. Let's put it that way. I think there was a lot of optimism around how easy it was to just file and raise money from non-U.S. investors or only accredited investors and be in, in complete compliance. And I think the overall attitude now is that it's more work than people thought it was a year ago. And so I think that whole space is just, it's more difficult to actually take a small company through the ICO process. And there's not as much uh, money available to do it. Whereas your institutional clients probably don't have the same regulatory hurdles and also are probably not capitalized primarily off of sort of peak price crypto you know when Bitcoin was at 15,000 or Ethereum was in the thousands and so they probably still have access to funding to see their projects through right I don't know what what are your thoughts
1: yeah I'd probably agree with you there the volume probably just doesn't exist to support you know an entire business unit focused on small ICOs and then on top of that as you mentioned there's regulatory concerns and it's probably just it doesn't make sense for Galaxy to take that kind of risk on. Right. So and then instead they're switching over to, you know, larger institutional clients. So I wonder what kind of stuff that they need help with there. You know, maybe like custody, like I'm not sure getting introduced into the space. I mean, like I'm just trying what kind of revenue opportunities are there from these like larger institutional clients?
0: Yeah. Well, to me, then it becomes more of like a actual like strategy and technical implementation issue where, so if you have a larger client that has a legitimate need for a blockchain product, they're going to need help with strategy. They're going to need help with actually designing the solution. They're going to need help with all of the implementation phases of it, you know, because a lot of that knowledge you do need to be really dialed in to the cryptocurrency space and the communities. (laughs) Uh, I mean, not intending that as a joke. And so, you know, a large company that doesn't have that as their competence will definitely need a lot of help if they're rolling out any blockchain based product. So I see the the value there. Yep.
1: So an, another part of this press release, and I thought it was hilarious that they just kind of like snuck this in. So they said, David Namdar, co-head of trading, will be leaving Galaxy Digital to pursue other opportunities. Peter Wisnowski co-head of trading, has been a key part of the firm's trading business since inception and will seamlessly assume responsibility and oversight of the company's day-to-day trading activities. Seamlessly. Right, seamlessly. So a cause of concern is that, you know, one of their co-heads of trading is leaving, and this is probably one of their major businesses. And it isn't necessarily related to the advisory portion of their business, but that's why I've just found it strange that they, they just tuck this into this press release. As an aside, is it common to have two heads of trading? Uh, Yeah, sometimes like one trader will be a really good manager. I think of like a trading group as its own entity. So like one of the traders might be a really good uh, COO type and the other is like actually a really good trader type or maybe a really good risk manager type. So those roles aren't necessarily written in stone, but, you know, I've met traders who are like awesome traders, but hate anything to do with management and others who are like, they're kind of like done trading. They want to take a pretty nice salary, some ownership in the business and they'll like do all the management stuff. Like they all exist. Okay. Yeah. So like all this stuff happened, you know, like things like this happen from time to time. People leave portions of your business are shut down because they're not profitable. I just thought the timing, like two months ago they had this advisor business and then it, they shut it down or they they shifted its focus you know, two months later. That was just uh I would say it's like it's weird. And then on top of that, they decided to release all that information on Friday evening, which is basically like it has all the trappings of the Friday night news dump.
0: What's the Friday night news dump? So
1: I have seen so many companies on Friday night, like market is open from 9:30 to 4. And on Friday at four o'clock, most traders will wait like 15 minutes just to give you like an example, Monday through Thursday, right? Market opens nine 30 to four Eastern. A lot of traders might stay until like five or so let's say, because like there's aftermarket trading opportunities and maybe six. And then often later, like during er earnings season, because like you'll definitely get some aftermarket trading opportunities during earning season. But then on a Friday, It's not like an agreement that we have all agreed to that, you know, you won't put out news after four, but typically companies don't because most people like 4.15, they're done. They're off to like go hang out, go get drinks, you know, that kind of thing. And so many companies will think because they're all the traders are gone. They'll release news on Friday at like 5 p.m. and no one will see it and they can just kind of like, you know, shove it under the rug. Yeah. and. Maybe it worked better like before the internet, but it definitely doesn't work that well now because like if it's in imp- if it's important news, it'll just get amplified. There's like like whole Barbara Streisand effect. Have you heard of that? Uh no, what's that? Oh, so Barbara Streisand basically she's this actress, right? And there's some pictures of her house like floating around on the internet. She didn't want to have them shared. And because of that, it, they ended up becoming really popular and ended up spreading even more dramatically, okay. so it's like you try to hide something, and as a result, it ends up becoming very well known. That's like the Barber Streisand effect.
0: Okay. So it's kind of like banning a book is the best way to make it a bestseller. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Got it.
1: Yeah. So that ends up happening with all these like Friday night news dumps, especially if they're important. So it's just weird. Like you don't want to release news that's important at that time because everybody is gonna, especially now with the internet, everyone is gonna see it on Monday.
0: Yeah. It's actually funny because I I saw this happen recently and it wasn't a Friday night news dump, but it was an election night news dump, uh, (laughs) which, you know, I guess only happens once every two years, but still counts. So, you know, Boeing had recently, there was that uh, 737 MAX that had crashed. And in investigating that, they basically found that it was a fault with their sensors that when they would malfunction, it would cause the plane to basically nosedive. You know, it's a pretty bad bug. Yeah. And they released that like report during election night, (laughs) which can't have been accidental. Right. (laughs) What was funny with that one is that I think the markets didn't move on that much. So for whatever reason.
1: I remember you had told me, about it. I looked at Boeing stock and it was like up a couple of percent. It was weird. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the last bit of, you know, Bitcoin is dead type of news is one that we're seeing now is that volatility is dead. So we've gone from Bitcoin is too volatile to be a currency to, you know, volatility is dead. Therefore, Bitcoin is dead. So there's this piece out out (laughs) of, (laughs) there's this piece out of the block, which, you know, we've mentioned before, they're a news outfit here in New York. And, you know, I regard, I regard them pretty highly. So unlike so much of the rest of crypto media, they have a lot of data and sources that back up their research, So we actually went on this huge diatribe against crypto media a few episodes ago and you know how it's all like pay to play now and how a lot of crypto media outlets generate these echo chambers back on episode 20. So you should check that one out. Um, But anyway, so the block doesn't have the same MO as a lot of those other crypto media outlets. They do a lot of fundamental research. And in this piece, they look at Bitcoin volatility. And the piece is titled Bitcoin's Volatility is Hitting Its Lowest Level in Two Years. And it's forcing traders to shake up their strategy. So they define volatility here is the standard deviation of daily returns over a period of time. So they look at the 30-day rolling period. And if you take a look at the chart, you know, we see that Bitcoin's volatility has dropped from 8% to sub 2% since the beginning of the year. So the consequence of this is that for certain types of firms, it makes it harder to generate profits based on volatility. So. For example, this has affected professional traders who did arb at different exchanges, like you know buying Bitcoin on Exchange One and selling on Exchange Two, and Exchange Two had a thousand dollars spread with Exchange One. So, in periods of like massive volatility, so I'm not totally clear. I don't know if this is like a it's because of volatility or because of the na- how nascent the market was at the time. But you know, go back a year or two. And there's a giant range in Bitcoin prices from exchange to exchange. You could have bought on one, sold on the other, sold on one, bought on the other. That's uh, stuff like that was pretty common during that period. But now that things are quieting down, a lot of these firms have to move to other types of businesses. So one of these sounded pretty interesting. So this is from the report. In the meantime, firms are exploring new strategies and business opportunities. So, for example selling Bitcoin for yen and then buying Ethereum with that and then selling into Litecoin. He said as an example, they were talking to a trader. The arbitrage opportunities are far more complicated. You have to have access to the exchanges and bank accounts and FX brokerages to access those markets to get in and out of very quickly. The combination of tools required to spot the gaps between prices and The different foreign currencies required to profit from them add just another layer of complexity. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Like, you know, you see this kind of stuff in markets all the time, especially as they mature. You know, early adopters have access to the easiest money. And then as more competitors come to the market, it drives lower profits until, you know, the OGs need to rethink their strategies. In this case, you know, everyone is going for exchange ARB. It probably helped narrow the spread across exchanges especially as multiple players were doing this, we're all doing the same thing. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if it's volatility. We will have volatility again. So it'll be interesting to see if that drives those spreads. But, you know, either way, it, professional trading shops need to be looking for alpha.
0: In our last podcast, we had discussed uh, stable coins. And one of the benefits we mentioned about stable coins was that if the currency, you know, like let's say, you have a USD backed stablecoin and then you have bitcoin and if bitcoin is very volatile then it's useful to have a stablecoin that you can you know shift your money to on the flip side if you have a relatively new stablecoin and you have tons of volatility sometimes it's hard for them to maintain their peg so is the low volatility a good thing or a bad thing for all of these new stablecoins do you think
1: so i think it probably depends on what the stablecoins intended to be Like if they're just for fiat on-ramp, like USDC or Tether, maybe there's less of a relationship there. But then on the flip side, low volatility means less trading, means less trading revenue. And if there's more volatility, there'll be more trading, more trading revenue, which might be good for the, you know, the companies who are issued the stable coins. But it's a good question. As far as like the stable coins, the, the kinds of coins that are looking for like stability, that are not marked to fiat, like they're ones trying to match to the CPI and things like that. I'm not sure. I mean, they're centralized. And I think we had talked about some of the decentralized ones as well. Right. Yep. So as far as the centralized ones go, they seem like, you know, a lot of these, like Bitcoin stabilizes and its volatility is like ends up sub 1%. It's not looking good for the centralized stable coins.
0: Right, Like they don't have much utility at that point, right, so yeah, we'll see how it plays out, I guess so one
1: other uh topic you know, we talked about the whole Bitcoin is dead thing. Another topic we wanted to go over because it hits pretty close to home, so it's now finalized that that Amazon's going to be opening up their next headquarters in in New York uh, in Long Island City. And in Virginia. So the Long Island City location is only five or six miles away from Quantlier's Brooklyn office. So this probably will affect us in a lot of ways that we haven't thought about yet. So that would be just interesting to talk about because literally the deal had been in the works for a while and people are speculating on it for the last week or so, but it sounds like it's pretty official now. So they, they published the deal, the deal letter between New York and Amazon. And we'll add those to the show notes, but it's got tons of details on the deal. Because I found that a lot of the – I don't know if you found the same thing, Faison, but like a lot of the news out there and like chatter on Reddit, it's like very, very – not just negative, but like aggressively negative. So I think vitriol is the right term for it, not just Right, Right, (laughs) vitriolic. So looking through the report itself is probably like the most unbiased way. Anyway, so uh, first off, the agreement is between – New York State Urban Development Corporation, New York City Economic Development Corporation, and the city of New York with Amazon. So this is the crux of the deal, which they kind of lay up up front. The design, development, construction, renovation, and operation of what will initially be approximately 4 million square feet of commercial space and the creation of 25,000 new jobs with an average wage of over 150,000 annually within 10 years of the date hereof. With a planned expansion for a total of 6 to 8 million square feet of commercial space, that is expected to result in the creation of up to 40,000 jobs within 15 years of the date hereof. Fizan, what's your your gut take on this?
0: Yeah, those are some huge numbers. I don't have a good like mental model of what 4 million square feet of commercial space is but the map that was attached to the filing marks out a pretty large area sort of in a very prime part of Long Island City so Long Island City is actually Queens it's basically the westernmost point of Queens just across the water from Manhattan and you know 25 to 40,000 jobs is also a, that's that's a massive number of people Like, I know the reaction is some of the reaction has been that, well, you know, adding 25,000 people to New York is not the same as adding it to, say, SF, just in terms of the ratio of the population. But it's going to have some huge impacts for that neighborhood uh, because you're adding all this commercial space, you're adding a massive amount of people that need to commute to this specific location. And then most of those people are probably going to want to live in the area. So it's for good or bad, definitely going to be transformative. But I don't have a good. I don't have an opinion yet on whether it will be a good or a bad thing, except for on rent prices. If I want to live there, it'll definitely be a bad thing.
1: <laughs> right. And they actually lay this out. This is why I always like first primary research is like the first place to go. So they have this like little section called ESD incentives and they lay out how many. So they're going to do the 25,000 jobs, but they lay it out by year. Right. So like two thousand nineteen seven hundred. So they're kind of like dipping their toes in the water. In 2020, 2,900. This is net yeah, new The first jobs. 700 are probably Simulatory. what, recruiters
0: to hire the other 24, yeah. <laughs> in two years?
1: <laughs> right. So we're going to have a whole bunch of recruiters in Long Island City for Amazon. So the other key things that are worth mentioning from the agreement, some are just hilarious. We'll get to that one in particular around the helipad. But so here are a few things. Project's going to be located in the borough of Queens. We talked mm-hmm. about that. The company will submit to the public parties for the review and approval. Uh, The development plan will contain an overall project timeline that everyone has to agree on. The company will prepare and submit to the public parties a plan that has to do with the financing and operation of the project. They're gonna have to relocate city agencies that are on the site somewhere else. They're gonna have to undertake a community outreach process With the company from the public announcement of the project to the final approval to engage all relevant stakeholders. I wonder if that sounds like like a like a town Hmm. hall type of thing. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. They're going to have to fund public serving infrastructure improvements in the adjacent neighborhood. So this is a big one to me. This one to me. Yeah, this is a huge one to me. Like, I, you know, a lot of our listeners are from New York, so you're all familiar with like the state of the subway. But the rest of you who aren't here and haven't like been here recently, you know, the subway is in terrible shape. You know, it's slow; it doesn't run on time. That's common throughout subways in the U.S. But it's it's uh, really bad. It's got a lot of other issues. Yeah, it's really bad.
0: And and what's interesting to me about the point is like, let's say Amazon does just give money for uh, infrastructure improvements. There's a lot of steps between, let's you know, them paying like two hundred million dollars, let's say, and the transit in and around the area that they've increased traffic to actually getting better, and I think that's it's not a, a direct, you know, you give money and then the problem is solved. So I think there's a lot of risk of their things going south with that particular point.
1: Yeah. I mean, they could even give $10 billion, but it's still going to have to go from, all right, here's $10 billion. Now we have to actually figure out how to allocate it. And then, you know, what changes we're going to have to make to the system. Like it's like a 20 year project to fix, Yeah, maybe even longer to fix like the MTA alone.
0: Getting a little local again, but the L train, uh, which crosses from Williamsburg into Manhattan. So sort of not directly south but a little bit south of long island city where the amazon development is that's actually being shut down for supposedly a year and a half uh, and a lot of that traffic is going to end up being you know rerouted up via long island city into midtown and if that project ends up running long you already are seeing increased loads like through that area of transit and so yeah that's a good point amazon adding to that is really it's really risking uh, making a big bottleneck there just into, if you're just analyzing yeah. like the downsides infrastructure wise,
1: right? So this point, like this whole fund public serving infrastructure improvements in the adjacent neighborhood, it's it's like point seven in a subsection of a subsection of the agreement. And it, to to New Yorkers, I think this should be like, all right, what do we, what else are we getting from you guys? Like you're coming out here, yeah, we get the job argument. Like there's two sides of the fence to that, like whether or not that's going to be good or or bad. But there's going to, there are to the whole rent thing you pointed to before that without a doubt, it's going to make rent rises in that neighborhood and adjacent neighborhoods. And that's going to push like a certain population away. And like there is without a doubt some version of that that's going to happen. So, okay, this part, this part's hilarious. Uh, the public parties recognize that the company needs access to the development sites and agree to assist in securing access to a helipad on the development sites as part of the development plan and subject to FAA approval. And before everyone freaks out and thinks New York is going to pay for this, so, okay, any new construction would be at the company's sole expense and in order to minimize disruption to the surrounding communities. Like they have all these things, like you can only do 120 flights in a year, it has to be over water and things like that. Somebody already came up with like a Jeff Bezos helipad comic and we'll link to that one in the show notes it's kind of funny but I don't know what do you, what do you think about this one?
0: <laughs> I mean like so realistically if you look where they are location wise they' they're again sort of west side of Queens right by the water. I think it's one of those things where having a helipad there, if they're not like using it to just like hover over residential neighborhoods is probably not actually a big deal. But it's one of those things yeah. that people will latch on because they're just going to be mad that someone else gets to have a helipad and they don't. Um, right. One of the great equalizers of New York is that's a pain in the ass to get anywhere, whether you're broke or you're a billionaire. Because right. you're going to be sitting in traffic, <laughs> or you're going to be sitting on the train, or you can walk. And so a helipad is cheating and it's probably going to piss people off.
1: <laughs> and Actually, just the way the document was organized, it's also indented um, to the left of the whole Uh, public serving infrastructure stuff. So it's like given higher importance than that. Hmm.
0: But like, I think the real issue is the infrastructure. I think the helipad is more of just like something that uh, captures the imagination.
1: Yeah. So the few other things, I think this stuff's all good. I mean, we don't get much details here, so I just kind of have to like go with their imagination, but it sounds like pretty good. They have this section on workforce development, the city. ESD and the company agree to make an initial investment of five million each, totaling fifteen million, beginning in the calendar year 2020, to fund workforce development initiatives in connection with the project.
0: This is the part I don't understand. Why? Why, why does the city have to give fifteen million dollars for anything? I mean, it's not a question you have to answer. It's just like, what, what is? Oh, I'm I'm just trying to think if there's any kind of corollaries like to other businesses for expecting the city to yeah put up fifteen million for like workforce development. I mean, if Amazon is hiring 25,000, $150,000 average workers, like, you know what I mean? It just, it just seems a very small scale and B to what end?
1: I don't know. Maybe someone on the, NYCDC or the ESD wants to run a coding boot camp. I mean, like, it's hard to know, like, what, what the real reasons are with these Someone
0: things. To carve out their little, little, little niche. Yeah. of 15 million on this very big otherwise deal. Right. <laughs> That's um, true.
1: New York City based technology training programs targeting non-traditional demographics include NYCHA residents combined with company recruiting and interviewing efforts directed to students graduating from such programs. So you know it sounds like they're going to there's going to be investment in the community with respect to uh generating jobs for the community. We'll see how that plays out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm always very skeptical about stuff like this because to me it always is politically motivated in the sense of that like, well, we're letting Amazon come here, but here's what we're going to do to make sure it benefits the current residents. Yep. And it's often hard to start with a top-down approach like that versus like Who knows if the output of a program like that is actually beneficial directly to uh, like career at Amazon versus other ways you could achieve the same goals without like having to force that relationship. Yep. So
1: there is also an attached letter from Holly Sullivan at Amazon. So she basically ran the show to do this deal. All right. So this is this is. The last bit that we'll read from this. So, okay, based on our discussions, Amazon.com Services Inc. will establish a headquarters in Long Island City of four to eight million square feet, create as much as twenty-five thousand jobs, expanding to forty thousand, and invest as much as three point six eight six billion over fifteen years. In recognition of the scale and projected economic impact of the project, New York State is offering Amazon.com Services incentives structured on a post-performance basis that are valued up to 1.7 billion if the company creates as many as 40,000 jobs. The number of current Amazon employees in New York state is uh, 4,700. So this 1.7 like billion, I've already seen a bunch of people talking about this. So New York Democratic Assemblyman Ron Kim, he's putting a bill out to push back on the Amazon deal. He said stuff like, uh, lawmakers must have the guts to push back against a person like Andrew Cuomo, who's just trying to extract money and wealth out of the state.
0: So just back of the napkin, like let's say this one, I don't know the structure of this 1.7 billion, but let's say it's a tax break. That's $42,500 per employee with at 40,000 employees. Uh-huh. That seems like a lot. Do, do you know if it's like a, they get a tax break or what, what exactly those incentives are?
1: I don't know what the incentives are. I, there's a there's this thing called the Excelsior Jobs Program, which uh, New York State has that had nothing to do with Amazon. I think Amazon is just trying to take advantage of it. But it has there's basically a jobs tax credit, an investment tax credit, R and D tax credit, and then a property tax credit. And it sounds like you know they're kind of like using all those credits to to generate this business. So forty thousand jobs. You're saying it's forty thousand per. Person roughly
0: forty two thousand yeah. If you take one point seven billion into forty thousand, it's a uh, forty two thousand five hundred dollars per person. Okay, so that just seems like a big number.
1: Yeah, that does seem like a big number. I wonder how it relates to you know how much tax revenue they will have from these new jobs, and then also if the jobs are going to well, be. Well, you can met ballpark
0: or- it if if it's average one hundred fifty thousand, then it's going to be what like 65 sixty five seventy grand, right? All in with, and we're just talking for the city actually. So that's going to be you know a lot less yep. than that yeah it seems like a pretty big number at at first glance so yeah I'm sure we'll hear more about that point particularly right. and the helicopter <laughs> we'll see how it plays <laughs> out I mean he, he owns a space flight company so it, it you know helicopter seems reasonable it could have been a rocket landing pad.
1: <laughs> blue origin Long Island City
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah
1: hey everyone this is Vikram again thanks for listening to us If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R. Or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. (music)